All right, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And uh, if you've been around very long, you know what we tend to do is we work our way through books of the Bible. So we'll be in a book of the Bible. It's called expositional uh, teaching. Sometimes for five months, six months, eight months, or whatever. But during the season of Advent, which is our opportunity to really pause and reflect on on the coming of Jesus, we're doing a separate uh, Advent series. So this morning, um, we'll be covering verses 26 through 56. I know your bulletin says 39 through 55, but as I got into the text, I just decided to widen it out a little bit. In February 2003, I was playing pickup basketball at a local university, and um, I was the chaplain for the men's basketball team, so I was able to get in the gym and play with the students. And, uh, and there was a, it was a huge gym, and we're playing ball in multiple courts. And, and as I looked over kind of uh, to the side, I noticed there was a young man who was jumping off of the bleachers, the top of the bleachers, and doing flips onto a, a landing pad. This is the same landing pad that they use for the pole vault and so on. And I, it didn't seem to be any sort of sanctioned practice. I didn't see any trainers or coaches around, but um, just found it to be interesting. We kept playing ball, and it was about five minutes later as we were running up uh, at the court that we heard something uh, surprising, shocking. We heard this loud thud, and we looked over to find, to see really the unthinkable. Uh, this young man had missed the landing mat and, uh, in fact, fell onto the hardwood floor. So, of course, everybody, we ran over to him, um, called 911 immediately. And when we went over to see him, all we noticed was his body was shaking involuntarily and there was blood coming out of his ears. So I, I asked if, if it would be okay if I prayed for him. I prayed for him. Right after that, the paramedics came and they took him to the hospital and I had never seen this kid before. I didn't know the kid, uh, but I just felt this burden to go to the hospital the next day. And I was, a, again, a pastor in a church that was only three miles from the university. And so I went there, I met his parents, found out a lot about this young man. His name was Nathan. Uh, he played uh, cello in the school, the university's orchestra. Um, uh, his parents share with me a lot of things that he loved to do and some of his interests. He was a sophomore. Um, his parents informed me they were... They were sort of non-practicing uh, Roman Catholics. They were part of a, a long tradition of, of Catholics, but they didn't go to church anywhere. They didn't call themselves Christians. And I stood there and, uh, with them and their young man as he was uh, still unconscious. I, I saw in their faces, of course, looks of confusion, uh, anger, you know, all the understandable emotions, pain. It was one of the most heartbreaking experiences that I had ever gone through at that point, and really in some ways still is, uh, seeing the looks on their faces. Within 48 hours of the, the uh, incident, the young man passed away, never regained consciousness. And as I was in the room with them, of course I had no idea what to say. You know, platitudes from a stranger aren't typically well received in moments like these, and so mostly I just sat there, listened to them, prayed with them uh, as they allowed me to. Um, and even though I knew there were no words that were ever going to dull the pain or, or provide any sort of instant uh, comfort or really even heal their broken hearts, I did wonder how things might have been different if they had known Jesus. In other words, if they had the confidence that one day they would see their son again. One of the only things that can provide encouragement in our darkest times is the anticipation that 
Something is going to change. Someday things will be better. Something better is on the horizon. We're in the fourth week of our Advent series where we're looking again at the coming of Jesus. That word Advent means arrival or, or coming. And we're looking at what he accomplished and what we can expect when he returns. Uh, this morning, though, we're going to look at the anticipation of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and what we can learn from her experience. Here's kind of the arc of our series. I've, I've given the outline of the last couple of weeks. This first week, we looked at chaos, what's wrong with our world, why is it that the nations rage against God. Last week was longing, and this morning uh, from Luke chapter 1, anticipation. Next week, we'll, be, we'll look at the arrival of Jesus naturally on just a few days before Christmas, and then on the 29th, we'll look at the return of Christ. So Luke chapter 1, let me begin by reading verses 26 through 38. The word of the Lord reads this way. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, just a word of explanation. We're kind of jumping in here. We haven't been in Luke. The sixth month, this is a reference to the sixth month of Elizabeth, Mary's uh, relative's pregnancy. Uh, So sent from uh, God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was uh, Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he, that is the angel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and try to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So again, you know, if we were working through the Gospel of Luke, we'd spend, we wouldn't cover this large of a passage. We'd spend more time looking at this. But again, this is part of an Advent series. And since we are kind of parachuting into it, let me set it up for you. Uh, when the events described in Luke chapter 1 took place, the events that I just read about, it was a very, very dark time in the Palestinian world. In the first uh, chapter of the same Gospel, we're told that these were the days when Herod The king of Judea reigned, and when Luke mentions Herod's name, it wasn't simply historical data. It wasn't simply so that we would know it was 4 B.C. When Herod's name was mentioned, Luke intends to evoke an emotion. When we read that phrase, of course, we don't sense it now, but when when that phrase was read by the original audience in the days of Herod, it sent chills down their spine. Herod was the personification of evil. He murdered both of his brothers-in-law, his own wife, Miriamne, as well as his mother-in-law. He was also the one, as you know, you may recall, who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. And he made a decree that upon his death, 
prominent citizens of Israel would be gathered into the Hippodrome, and some of those, those prominent citizens would actually be killed. Now, why do you think on the day of his death, he ordered that other people would be killed? If you ever had, when you were growing up, maybe your parents said to you, um, you were shedding a tear over something silly, and they said, look, if you don't stop crying, I'm going to give you a reason to cry. I'm going to give you something to cry about. Now, I know you're looking at me with strange... I, you're from Alabama. I know somebody heard that as they were growing up, right? Okay, there's a few hands. You, your parents said, uh, you know, I'm going to give you something to cry about. Well, what Herod realized was, because he was so diabolical, because he was so evil, he knew that when he died, nobody would shed a tear. In fact, there would be much celebration, oh, certainly privately. So what he said is, we're going to gather together some of the prominent citizens, some of the beloved citizens, and on the day that I die, they're going to die so that finally, so that for a good reason, people in this city will be filled with mourning. This guy was a monster. So if you were a Jewish citizen under his rule, you were already skittish. It didn't take much to frighten you. Well, way out on a mountainside village in a little town called Nazareth, she only had about 500 people living in it. It was actually, just to give you a frame of reference, it was way smaller than the, the size of the arsenal. It was a very small area. Uh, way out in that mountainside village, there was, a little, there was a teenage girl by the name of Mary. And to Mary, an angel appears and says, Don't be afraid. You are going to conceive and bear a son and call his name Jesus. Well, as you can imagine, bearing a son was not on Mary's radar at all. She had never been with a man. Now, she did have a much older relative whose name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth was six months pregnant at that time, the son who would be known uh, as John the Baptist. But Mary has no designs on having children anytime soon. Again, she's never been with a man. She was betrothed to a man named Joseph, and betrothal is something more serious than, than our engagement. Um, it's uh, unlike our engagements, which can be ended, and maybe you... Know someone who's been engaged, they ended that. A betrothal could only be ended uh, by death, really. So it was a very serious thing. But she was not married, so she wasn't expecting any of this. A teenage girl awaiting her big wedding day, which was still about a year away. So she's stunned by all of this. In fact, Luke tells us in verse 29, she was greatly troubled. She was greatly troubled. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Mary was perplexed, she was disturbed, but incredibly... It's not at the presence of the angel that she's greatly troubled. Now, when angels appear, especially in the Old Testament, it was a frightening thing. People often died when they showed up. But doesn't, she's not afraid at the appearance of the angel. What bothers Mary is what the angel says, namely the angel's greeting, the announcement that Mary has found favor with the Lord. Now, why was she so bothered? Mary doesn't believe that she is worthy of the Lord's presence. She doesn't believe that she is worthy of being favored by the Lord. Henry Osawa Tanner is the, uh, kind of the first African-American painter uh, to gain international notoriety uh, from our country. He was born in Pittsburgh in 1859, uh, and then sometime after that moved to Paris as a young man to kind of perfect his craft. His mother was born into slavery and escaped uh, from Virginia. His father was a pastor in the AME Church, the African uh, Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, and Henry Tanner uh, was a man who lived a very tortured and tormented uh, early life. 
One of Tanner's first paintings was entitled The Annunciation. It was painted in uh, 1898. Some say it could have actually been his first sort of a completed piece. Let me show it to you. Here's what it looks like. This is an, this is an artist's rendering of the scene that I just read about from Luke. And I love the way this painting, really, that's Mary there. And I love the way it captures Mary's surprise, Mary's uh, sort of vexed spirit. And when you look at that, you see the, 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 the angel appearing on the left, you know, or at least the artist rendering. It's, it's amazing what artists can do. You almost feel like you have to squint a little bit. It's so bright. It's just paint. But it really gives you an idea, of a way to kind of picture what happened. Yes, Mary is a chaste person. Yes, she is a virgin. Yes, she is a follower of, of the law. Yes, she is a believer in the one true God of Israel. But she finds it absolutely stunning that she would get, gain such attention because she, wasn't, she doesn't believe she was worthy of such attention. And in fact, she wasn't. The angel, angel Gabriel who stands in the presence of God says to Mary, Greetings. O favored one. Now this is such an important phrase. Let me tell you what we may think it means, but it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, O favored one doesn't mean, O deserving one. It doesn't mean, O special one. It doesn't mean, O righteous one. It doesn't mean any of those things. Favor is a Greek word, uh, charis, which means grace. Uh, and this is what the angel says to Mary you have found favor with God. In other words, on you, God has poured out His grace. Mary wasn't any closer to being perfect than perhaps any other young woman of Nazareth or of any other surrounding villages for that matter. She wasn't sinless. The most devastating consequence, as we talked about in the first week of this series of Adam and Eve's rebellion, is that every person will be born sinful. Mary did not escape this. She was born into Adam's fallen condition, separated from God, born with a broken will. Mary's will was corrupt. Mary's heart was impure and sin-cursed, just like everybody else's. Yet in God's wisdom and for reasons known only to Him, He chose her to be the mother of the Messiah. Here's what one New Testament scholar, Daryl Bach, writes. It must be emphasized that despite all these qualities, all the things that I mentioned, God's choice of Mary to bear this child springs from His grace, not from any inherent merit that she possesses. She is the object of God's unmerited, graciously provided goodness. If I can paraphrase a 16th century German theologian, Johannes Brenz, he writes, Mary didn't find acceptance because on her own merit. She found grace because of the goodness of God. So this story, first of all, tells us something about God, the nature of God, and even something about our own salvation. Here's our first point this morning. The only appropriate initial response to the gift of God's grace is, why me? Why me? And we think about what God has given us, most notably, most incredibly, his salvation in Christ. The only response that we can have initially is, why should I? It should be, in every Christian testimony, there are some things. 
There, now, they're all, as I said to someone just the last week, there are different scenarios, and maybe we come to faith at a different age, but every Christian testimony should involve faith in Jesus and, of course, repentance. But every Christian testimony should have as the tone astonishment. Why me? Why should God choose me? Why should God allow me to understand his salvation? Why should God enlighten my eyes? Why should God make my heart spiritually alive? Why should God pour out his grace on me? And this is something that Mary understood. We're going to see in just a moment when Mary worships the Lord in song, she doesn't praise God for his fairness or or his keen sense of observance, things that he noticed in her. She praises God for his mercy. Mercy is the pardon for sin. She praises God for his grace. Grace is receiving good things that we don't deserve nor could ever secure on our own. And Mary is the recipient of both. And so is every single person who is in Christ. If you are in Christ this morning, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you are favored by God. He delights in you. He cherishes you. You are a beneficiary of His grace. He has pardoned you from your sin, and He takes tremendous joy in you. If you're not in Christ, you're not favored by God. And the reason that you're not in Christ is not because God has rejected you. It's because you have rejected God in favor of your own independence in favor of your own autonomy, in favor of your own insights. But it doesn't have to be that way. God gives everyone a chance to end their rebellion and turn to Him in faith. And you can do that even today. Even today, you can repent of your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and be made new. If you have God's favor, even if you have nothing else, you have everything you need. If you had everything else in the world, but you didn't have God's favor, it would mean nothing. Being favored by God means everything. Mary was favored by God, and because she received His grace and mercy, she's willing to do whatever God asked her to do. Look at what she says in verse 38 again. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary accepts what God has for her. And she will travel into the hill country of Judah to see her relative, Elizabeth. And look at what happens when she greets Elizabeth, verses 39 through 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? There again that question, why me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what, the Lord, of what was spoken to her from the Lord. During each of Janine's four pregnancies, Uh, She was an amazing uh, pregnant wife. She never got tired of our kids moving around in the womb. And uh, and we had very active kids. She dealt with some very uh, 
hyperactive in utero children. So it was a, a regular occurrence for the kids to kick and, and reposition and, and even give her an elbow to the ribs or whatever it was. And, and Janine, when she was pregnant, she, she got really big. Is it okay to say that? Okay, it's okay. I, that's one of those ones I should have asked first, I guess. But, you know, she had, we had big babies, you know, 10 pounds baby. baby. So she, she, she was big, and she would ask me, she would say, oh, you got to come here, you got to feel this. And so I would come, and I would feel the baby reposition. And In fact, the babies were so active that it was not uncommon at all for other women in the church to, to gather around, and they would put hands on Janine's stomach, and they would hear, and they would feel the baby move. In fact, there was even one man in the church who took a very sort of bizarre and extreme uh, interest that I had to actually have involuntary counseling with. He didn't sign up for it, um, but he got it. I say, look, okay, enough of that. You know, no, that's enough. Um, but there was so much activity going on that it was a very, it was a common thing, right? It's, it's common for a baby to move around in the womb. If you, you've been pregnant as a woman, you, you, you felt this. But what happened to Elizabeth? was not the least bit common. In fact, it was decidedly uncommon. It was so much more than just a gentle kick that this baby would make. The baby leaped in the womb. In other words, danced in celebration at the sound of Mary's voice. Elizabeth, we're told in verse 40, was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives Elizabeth a moment of supernatural clarity and insight. She knows that Mary is carrying the Son of God. The child that Mary is carrying is the Lord of the universe. The child that is in Mary's womb is actually the very child, the very person that the prophets were telling about, were announcing about, were telling the people to look out for. The coming one, the Mashiach, the Messiah. Was the one, he was the one who would usher in shalom, total peace, to destroy the enemies of darkness. He was the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one that God spoke about in Genesis 3. He was the one, as we sang, and I love the worship set this morning, which took us from the, the holiness of God to the birth of Christ, to the, the death and resurrection of Christ. He was the one who would die a cruel death on a cross, suffer the very wrath of God, though he himself committed no sin for the sins of his people. And Elizabeth actually gets it. She understands the significance. She's thrilled for Mary. And incredibly, she's not the least bit jealous. She could have been jealous. She wanted to have a child for so long and was, was unable to. She's much older than Mary. She's been barren. And here's Mary, much younger, not even married, not trying at all, of course. She becomes pregnant with the Son of God. And Elizabeth is overjoyed. In fact, she's so humble in her response, recognizing God's goodness that she says, why would the mother of my Lord come to me? That's so beautiful. But the real expression of joy is reserved for Mary. Look at verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now I want to pause there because this is, can be confusing if we don't understand it correctly. Mary's response is to magnify the Lord. Well, how does a soul magnify the Lord? It's a tad bit easier for us to think about how we might magnify the Lord with our voices. Right? We sing songs of worship and celebration. We might even say it's easier to understand how we magnify the Lord with our actions as we obey Him. 
But how does a soul magnify the Lord? How does a spirit, as Mary says, rejoice in God? Well, to magnify means to make much of, to, to exalt as greatest priority. And I, I want to make sure I point this out. Mary's not creating separate categories for soul and spirit. These are words, especially in, in Hebrew thought, that were used interchangeably to describe the, the innermost part of a person's being. That, that Hebrew word, nephesh, their very essence, the person, the soul. In fact, this is classic Hebrew parallelism, which means that I think you could just as easily read verses 46 and 47 this way. My soul magnifies the Lord as my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It is by rejoicing in God, her Savior, that Mary glorifies the Lord. Here's our second point this morning. We magnify the Lord most beautifully when we fully delight in Him and His salvation. So when we, when we recognize, we come to the end of ourselves, we recognize, we, we as the, the Puritans would say, say, we despair of our own goodness. We know there's nothing that we can do to endear ourselves. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We actually rejoice completely and fully in the salvation of God and the one who offers that salvation. That's how we magnify the Lord most arrestingly. We most glorify the Lord when we are completely and utterly satisfied in Him, fully resting in His salvation, recognizing that God didn't pursue us because He saw some good in us. He didn't love us because of our works, because of something that we did or something that He knew we would do. He didn't pour out His grace on us because of our efforts. If He did, that wouldn't be grace, would it? This God who is rich in mercy overflows with kindness. And the scriptures tell us that while we were dead in Christ, while we were dead in sin, rather, Christ died for us. As someone has said, grace always comes as a contradiction. While we were objects of God's wrath, He made us to be at peace in Christ. While we were aliens and strangers, He adopted us. To his table. While we were enemies, God brought us to be at peace. While we were dead, God made us alive in Christ. We don't run to grace. Grace runs after us. We're not received by God because of our obedience. We obey God because we've been received. This is so important. Acceptance gives way to obedience, not the other way around. It's not obedience that gives way to God's acceptance. It's the fact that He accepts us in Christ by faith that moves us and stirs us to obey Him. If we get it the other way around, we end up just like every other religion in the world. Every other religion that's ever been created by mankind is about you do, you obey, you perform, you sacrifice, and then you'll be accepted. Every other religion in the world says if you can work your way up, if you can just keep climbing up those spiritual rungs, you will make your way to God. Only Christianity says... You can never make your way to me, but I'll come down to you. In Christ, the baby in a manger, is God with us. Even when people, even when you and I descend to the lowest depths of self-centeredness and depravity, God's grace still runs after us. He still covers us by His mercy. Again, not because we deserve it, but because He is a God of mercy and kindness and goodness and love. I love what uh, Jonathan Blanchard, who's the founder of Wheaton College, wrote. 
Blanchard says this, he would pray this often, God deliver me from sluggishness on the one hand and from ambition on the other. May I do all I can do and feel no more lifted up than if I did nothing. And that really captures the essence of the way that we should strive. Yes, we work hard and we mortify the flesh and we fight against sin and we we tell others about Jesus and we go out and we are ambassadors for Christ and we strive for holiness, but we recognize even the single baby step that we take is only because of the grace of God. It's only because of the Spirit who indwells us. So yeah, we, we, we work and we strive and we labor, but we realize we've all, we already have everything we need in Christ. We're not laboring to achieve or to garner some additional favor or acceptance. We do so out of love for what God has done. Mary magnified the Lord by delighting in His salvation. When Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, she's saying, God's love for me God's concern for me, His salvation stirs my soul at the deepest part of my being. He is my only hope. He is my only hope. Now look at verses 48 through 55. The song continues, For He has looked upon the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He's shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. You know, sometimes, it doesn't really happen so much. It hasn't happened really lately, but there was a period, I don't know if you call it the worship wars, but, you know, most people who've been a part of the church for a while have, been, have gone through it. There was a time when people would complain to me all the time about contemporary worship songs and the nature of them. They would say, all the songs are so... They're so touchy-feely. They're so me-centered. And, you know, on some level, I, I understand it, right? I, talking about touching Jesus' face and holding Him close, I mean, that, sometimes that's hard. It makes me uncomfortable, to be honest with you, sometimes. So I, I understand that on some level. Any song where Jesus can be taken out and a boyfriend or girlfriend can be put in, um, it bothers me a little bit. But there is a place for first-person pronouns in our worship. In fact, in Mary's song begins with a heavy emphasis on my and me. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now all generations will call me blessed, for he has done great things for me. There is a place for the first person pronouns in worship. But look what happens. Her, she changes in her worship from me and my to he and his. His mercy is for those who fear him. He has shown great strength. He has scattered the proud. He has brought low the mighty. He has filled the hungry. He has sent away the rich. Holy is His name. There's a very theocentric, a very God-centered aspect to the worship. And there's a, def a definite theme here in this song. God's grace has come to the earth. His grace and mercy. And if you meet that grace with humility, you will receive mercy. But if you spurn that grace, 
favor of relying on your own works, your own ability, your own insights, you will be, according to Mary, cast away from God forever. It is the proud, the mighty, the haughty, the rich that are broken by God, sent away and brought low. It is the poor, the weak, the helpless, the marginalized, who are rescued, delivered, and saved. And they're brought to a place of incredible joy. Here's our final point this morning. Really the main theme of Mary's song. The holy God comes to the rescue of the lowly and broken, leading the redeemed ones to sing with joy. You know, if you think about the church... There's absolutely no place in the church for the joyless Christian. Now, now of course, we, go, we have ups and downs, right? We have good days and bad days. And there are some days when my kids will say, oh, man, Dad, you're crazy today. You're, whatever, you're laughing. You're... And there's some days when I don't do anything. I walk in the room and say, why are you in such a bad mood? There are times when we have good days and bad days, of course. But there's no place... In the church, there's no place in the Christian faith for the joyless Christian. And if I can be so bold with you, I see a lot of joyless Christians. I see people who walk around and I can't in any way see joy on their face. I don't see joy in what they say. I don't see joy in their disposition. There's no place for that in the Christian life. When God comes to rescue the lowly and broken pouring out His grace and enabling us to have faith, it necessarily leads the redeemed ones to sing with joy. Mary's song is a hymn of joy and a summary of the gospel of grace. God, You rescue the broken. You pursue the helpless. You comfort those who fear You. You gathered those who are scattered. What Mary's saying is if you, if you are scattered, if you are broken if you've been written off, if you've been rejected by the people who love you, you will be gathered again. If you've been brought low, you will, you will be raised up. If you've been brought to humility by God, God will give you a confidence like He does to Mary. But if you're strong in your own ability, if you're resting in your own goodness, God will bring you down. See, the gospel is good news, but it's only good news to those who know they need good news. It's only good news to those who understand and recognize the bad news. And the bad news is we're all born separated from God. We're not born Christians. We're not born seeking God. We're born separated from God. We're born at odds with God. And that's actually very bad news. But the good news is despite all our own inability to remedy our situation. God takes those who are broken by the demands of the law, those who have failed miserably to keep His standards, those who have loved other things, those who have worshipped other things, though they don't bow down to those things, those who have rejected His ways and in favor of their own ways. God takes those who have been broken by the demands of the law to those who know how badly they have failed to keep all of God's commands and he actually brings about forgiveness and hope and restoration. And all of that is by faith in his son. 
Now, of course, it takes a supernatural act to, of God for us to know how bad and helpless we truly are. Because deep down inside, we actually think we're pretty good people. Because, you know, our tendency is always to compare downwards. So we look at other people, they're caught up in sins that we're not caught up in, and we think pretty highly of ourselves. But the Scriptures make it clear there is none righteous, not one. And it is the recognition of our unrighteousness, coupled with the understanding of God's grace, Belief in the very Son of God, as we've seen over and over and over in John's gospel, believing in the one who was sent. It's that that leads to joy, worship, and obedience. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Can you say that this morning? Can you say that? You can if you put your faith in Christ. You belong to Him. He is your God. He is your Savior. He is your Rescuer. And there's nothing you can ever do, nothing even you can do, there's nothing I can do to separate us ourselves from the love of God. You can say that if you're in Christ. And you'll be able to say with great joy, if you're not, if you're not in Christ, you've never put your faith in Christ, you can respond to the offer of God's salvation even this morning. And maybe you're here and and you've come at the invitation of a friend, or, or maybe you've been part of the church your whole life. But maybe the Spirit is impressing upon you this morning, that sort of drawing that Jesus talks about in John. You understand, actually, you're not as good as you thought you were. In fact, you're not worthy of God's acceptance. But maybe God is bringing you to a place of faith in His Son. And if you cry out to Him in faith, you'll be able to say with great joy, He who is mighty has done a great thing for me. For me, and holy is his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning for your salvation, for the glory of it. We praise you for your love for us, which you poured out on us when we were completely undeserving. And Lord, even though we should have been written off by you, that's what we deserved. We should have been cast away by you forever. You sent your son so that by believing in him, we could have eternal life. And not just a life, a glorious life that begins in the future. We could be right with you right now. We could be forgiven. We could have our guilt removed. Our fears allayed. Lord, I pray that that would be the case of someone this morning who doesn't know you. You bring them to saving faith. And for those who are here who are delighting in you, Father, will you enable us, even just seconds from now, Will you enable us to sing with great joy? Holy is your name. You are the great King. We praise you in Jesus' name.